All right, you guys. Well, we are continuing with the theme that was began the last time that we met together, so two weeks ago. And what that really is, is a narrowing in on the elements of a Christian worship, worship service. There are ele- elements and circumstances of a Christian worship, worship service. The elements are those main areas of necessity that should be part of every Christian worship service. So not the length of a sermon, that would be like a circumstance, but the fact that there is a sermon, that's an element. And so we're not talking about simply a Baptist or a Reformed Baptist worship service, but a Christian worship service. When the church gathers, all of a local church that is able, and not a subset of the group, but the whole church that is able to willing, willingly and gather, willingly to be gathered and meet together, and especially on the Lord's Day, but not limited to the Lord's Day, the Lord God has purposefully set that up, that sort of a meeting, for the benefit of His church. And remember, you know, God doesn't need anything. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our worship, though He deserves it, of course. And it's necessary that He has received it from our point, that He receives it from our point of view, because He has created us. He is the consumer of worship, and we don't consume worship. We offer it joyfully. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so what happens on the Sabbath, you might ask? Well, you might remember back to the sermons that we preached on the fourth commandment some time ago. The Sabbath is the new covenant, and the new covenant is the Lord's day. And that, of course, is the day that we gather to worship. And so it's important that we think about worship biblically and rightly. And if you remember from last time, Pastor Nick gave us an introduction on this section of worship and what God accomplishes in us through these specific means. He, he laid a foundation for our understanding these means of grace. They are outward and ordinary means by which God benefits us especially with the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. These are the means of grace, the the primary means of grace. These vehicles or instruments by which God imparts grace when he sanctifies us through the spirit that he has given to us. And if you weren't here for that, I would commend you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's on our website. It's the best sermon on worship that I've heard my brother preach on, on that topic. And so I, if, you haven't, if you weren't here for that two weeks ago, go back. It's on our website and listen to it. But tonight, the main thing that we're going to do is consider how it is that the word, and only the, the word for the most part, is an ordinary and outward means made effectual to, to salvation. And we have two questions to consider this evening, question 94 and 95. Both have to do with the word of God as a means of grace. And it's a way of thinking about the word of God that much of the modern church doesn't really think about that God himself is active through these means, especially the word of God, making it effectual to salvation. So question 94, this is on your outline if you have it. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The answer is the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So, This is the first ordinance or the primary and indispensable means of grace that God uses to build us up. And remember, we're thinking about these means of grace in light of the Reformed tradition, which is the most faithful to Scripture, I would argue. Not like how a Roman Catholic understands these ordinances or sacraments. For Rome, they hold that the means of grace or the sacraments, they work ex opera operato. In other words, 
what that means is that they work out of themselves as long as there isn't something in the, in the individual blocking them, some sin. But what that does is when you put the emphasis on the actual ordinances themselves, is it turns them into like a magical right that people rely on for salvation rather than faith in Christ alone. So we, we reject that notion of a means of grace. That's not how the Reformed view these ordinances. These means of grace are only effective unto salvation when a person has faith already, when a person has been regenerated by the Spirit, and then as the Catechism answer says, it is the Spirit of God that does it. It's not the instruments themselves, but it's the Spirit of God that does it. The Spirit of God takes the Word and it, and it makes it effective to convince them. That's maybe not the typical word we use. We probably think of convicting rather than convincing. But the same thing is meant there. Convince, convict. How, does, how is it, though, that the Spirit works through the Word to convict us? We know that we read of this, the Spirit working in the Word to convict us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, as Christ said. And how also the Spirit works through the Word to convert sinners and build them up in holiness and in comfort through faith unto salvation. It's, it's necessary to understand the Spirit's work in making these means effectual. So what I'd like to do for first is take a few moments to just think about the Word of God as a means of grace from the Scriptures, especially in the sense that it stands out in comparison to the other ordinances. So you even saw this, see this sort of in the language in question 93 and 94. It says, especially the Word. There's these ordinances in the church, these means of grace, and especially the Word. The pre- and then in 94, especially the preaching of the Word is noted. There is a primacy of the Word, and when it is in light of the other means of grace. The Word holds this special place, even over against baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when we rightly understand baptism and the Lord's Supper, those would even be what we would call visible signs of the Word. And they are always to be accompanied by the Word. More on that later. And even prayer, right? Prayer itself should be saturated with God's Word. And we'll talk about those things in the coming weeks, of course, as we finish up this series through the Catechism. But what is it that is unique about the Word of God? Well, for one, right, I mean, it's in the title itself. It's God's Word. It's His standard. There are are no mistakes in it. It is infallible and inerrant in the original manuscripts. And, And then even in our modern translations, they are extremely accurate, and we have no reason to doubt them. But... But notice that the Catechism's question isn't really speaking about the nature of God's Word. Uh, Those things are rather assumed by this point. We dealt with the nature of God's Word back in the opening questions of the Catechism. I think the first six or seven questions were on God's Word. Uh, So notice the Catechism is asserting that the reading, but especially the preaching of God's Word, is what makes it an effectual means of grace. So just a few verses to get us thinking here before we get to some of the passages that the Catechism cites. And we'll be kind of brief here. Hebrews 4.12. If you have your Bible, Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews is similar to Revelation, the book of Revelation, in the sense that it almost acts as like a divinely inspired commentary upon the Old Testament. Uh, For Hebrews, especially the the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 4... Uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, is talking about the superiority of Christ and the rest that we have in 
Christ and how Jesus Christ is the great high priest. And then there's the popular verse that we probably most of us know on Hebrews 4 verse 12, where it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, Christ Jesus is, of course, the essential word of God. And so, and if really, if you look at the context of Hebrews chapter 4 and this verse, really, this, the word of God, the living, the, the word of God is living and active. It, that's a, it's a way of talking about the person of the Son. The Son of God there. And so really you could swap out the term Word of God for Christ. I mean, it is Christ who is the living Word, who is active in sanctifying us, who by His Word and nature, He pierces down to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, a theological division to show the exposing of us that Christ does. And He knows our thoughts and intentions, but think of Scripture in light of that as well. They are Christ's, who is the living word, words. They're they're Christ's words. Scriptures are. The apostles and the prophets were carried along by the Spirit of Christ when they wrote. They spoke from God, as Peter notes in his second epistle. And you see, that's 121, I believe. And you see how the passage in Hebrews is showing us that the word of God is effectual. It's because of its relationship to the God who is working in people, especially spirit-filled people. Or consider 2 Corinthians 5.20. 2 Corinthians 5.20, probably another well-known passage and verse. It's the, 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 the section of Paul's defense against those, quote, super apostles who were these false apostles. And he's talking about what was given to him, this ministry of reconciliation. And in verse 20, which precedes that verse, that's like my favorite verse. But verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So notice the apostles' work there. They are ambassadors for Christ. And it's not really, that idea is not just limited to the apostles. Everyone who shares the gospel is this, and every Christian is one who can share the gospel and is therefore to be a minister of reconciliation. But look at what this verse says. There is a sense in which, there's a sense in which that when this happens, when we implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God, for people, in other words, to confess their sins and repent and to trust Christ, that in fact, God is making this appeal through us. Now, some would want to understand that, God making his appeal through us in a natural way, a way that is only so because we're sharing God's word. But there's actually more than that. God, in his sovereign choice, chooses to work through people as a means of grace to sanctify others, either the first time in salvation or in further steps of, salv- of sanctification. It's not you who is speaking, that's what you're doing, but God in his choice makes it effectual. So even think of the doctrine of the effectual call, which results in someone's salvation, right? We've talked about that in previous Sunday evenings even, the difference between the effectual call and what we would call the general call. 
we understand that when a person is saved, it's because of the work of God in that moment. So, for example, when the gospel gets shared, in, let's say to two people, and one is saved and the other is not, it's not because the person who was saved was smarter than the other person. It's not because they were more holy or more wise or more clever. No, it's because God made his appeal through the share of the gospel. And when God does that, it always results in regeneration when that happens. It's an effectual call. So there, there's a way in which we must see God working in and working through his word. That's why it's a means of grace. He's active spiritually through it. And one more example, and another well-known passage of Scripture. This time, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Most of us, many of us, probably have memorized the portion in Ephesians 2, which in verse 8 through 10, which speaks about the origin of faith and salvation and the, and the purpose of good works. But notice a section that comes after it. And again, we're, we're thinking here about how it is and why it is the word is a means of grace, how God is active actually in the word, and especially the word, in comparison to the other ordinances. So verse 11, read a little bit here through 18, actually. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right. So note, it's Gentiles that the Apostle Paul is writing to here, that he's addressing here in this letter, especially, especially in this passage that we just read. There were national Jews living in Ephesus, certainly. I mean, the Apostle Paul is one himself there, of course. But he's writing to Gentiles. The, the first three chapters of this letter are explaining how the covenant, covenant of grace was active before the cross of Christ and how Gentiles who believe now share in those covenant promises. And he addresses Gentiles in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. But then notice verse 17. There it says, but he came and preached peace. The, the he there is not the Apostle Paul. The antecedent is Christ. Christ came and preached to the Gentiles. Now, what do we think that means? That Jesus, during his time of his incarnation, after his baptism, left Israel and traveled to modern-day Turkey, to West Asia Minor, and he preached to the Gentiles before his crucifixion? We have nothing in the pages of Scripture to make us think so. We have everything in the Gospel accounts to make us think that didn't happen, even. Or maybe we think that he came down from heaven at some point and took on flesh, and he preached to the Gentiles there in Ephesus. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense with the rest of Scripture as well, and what we hear about Christ's second coming and his role as mediator now. 
Christ will come again, but that will, he will come to consummate his kingdom. He didn't come down a, some second time to come and preach to the Gentiles in Ephesus. He has had his victory, and he is reigning at the right hand of the Father now. So the only thing that this can be is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And let's understand better what that really means then. That is that when man is appointed by God, when the man appointed by God to preach and brings God's message speaks, there is a way that we must see that as God acting and speaking even. Not that the sermon or a gospel presentation is inspired in the same way that scripture is, but that it's a means of grace when God accompanies it to accomplish his sanctifying means. It is a means of grace. Christ came and preached to them. How did he do it? In the word that was preached to them, through those apostles and those pastors who were sent there and preached God's word. It's the same as if Christ was preaching to them is what he's saying. And one quick point of application here. We tend to not think this way, and it, often it shows in our worship services. We tend to be pietistic and to place emphasis on ourselves. And we do need to think of ourselves and our responsibility. Oh, that's question 95 after all. But the truth of question and answer 94, really it establishes our responsibility, our need for responsibility in question 95. So more important than us being prepared, which we should be, but more and even more important than us being distraction-free and we often have distractions, don't we? We have our wandering minds. Uh, God gives us children not to pawn off to others forever, but to train up for ourselves. That means that they will be a distraction for us at some point in the worship service when, when someone is preaching. But guess what? Because it is God who is working and his word is a means of grace, that means that regardless of the distraction, you're getting something from it. So, so be patient, with families, with little kids, and in this room sitting under the preaching of the word. They may not, these little kids may look like they're not paying attention even. They may look like they're even sleeping. I think one of mine is right now, to be honest. But God is working through the preaching of his word, and don't underestimate God. And don't think that God can't bless you despite having little kids in the room. The reality is, is that God is blessing the congregation by having those young image bearers present. And so the scripture places emphasis on the hearing and reading of the word of God more than the seeing and the experiencing. We do see the word of God in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, and we'll deal with them in coming weeks. But here, the spirit of God makes the reading and especially the preaching of the word an effective means. And really, they have in them two different categories. Here we see that the word is an effective means of convincing or convicting and then converting. And then also it is a means of building them up, building up those who are converted in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And really what I'm driving at here is that the word alone is both a converting and strengthening means of grace. And in that sense, it's different than the other ordinances. It's different than prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and perhaps other ordinances, as Pastor Nick alluded to a couple weeks back. We don't speak of baptism and the Lord's Supper in terms of converting, right? 
Well, maybe some denominations speak of it like that or perversions of Christianity speak like that, but that's not what was recaptured in the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to get to that eventually. I don't mean to get into those categories too much tonight because we'll soon be talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer because clearly in Scripture, those things come after the conversion of a person. And so the word alone is the means by which faith is generated and then also strengthened. And whereas baptism and the Lord's Supper will come along and strengthen and confirm our faith, again, listen to Nick's message, uh, these ordinances are, about, are more about what God is doing in them than what we are doing in them. Hence, you know, if we really believe that, we should pursue these things with a great zeal and a great desire. But it is the word alone that is, convicting, that is a convicting or convincing and converting means. Remember what Romans ten seventeen says. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. It's not that converting faith comes through our water baptism or the Lord's Supper, but that our faith is strengthened through those ordinances. It has a pre-existing faith that is strengthened through those, since those are means of grace. And so if you don't already have the Spirit, when you partake of them, they're just bare signs with no power at all. I mean, they're still proclaiming the gospel truths that they intend to proclaim in the promises of God, but there's no means of grace, spiritual power in them for the one who participates in them because they lack the Spirit of God. And as the Catechism says, it is the Spirit of God that makes these means of grace effectual. It's not a true baptism when someone gets baptized who doesn't have the Spirit. And so we don't seek to back- baptize people who aren't professing the faith. And the same with the Lord's Supper. It's just bread and wine, and it's not a means of grace at that point. Actually, according to 1 Corinthians 11, it's a means of judgment when you take it apart from being filled with the Spirit. And, but that's besides my point for this evening. But it's the testimony of Scripture, the Catechism and the Second London Confession, of, that, the, that the Word produces conversion. If you were to look at the Second London Baptist Confession of chapter 14, paragraph 1, this is the chapter on saving faith, and it, it deals with the means of grace. But chapter 14, paragraph 1 says, The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word, by the same ministry in the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper prayer, and other means appointed by God. Faith is increased and strengthened. So, so you see the difference that they make there. They say that faith is wrought by the ministry of the word, and even that, they want to be careful and say that it's ordinarily the way that God works, recognizing that there can always be ways that God works other, you know, in this capacity, maybe other than the ministry of the word, but he always uses his word, and so ordinarily, it's produced, it's wrought, it's created, it's, it's birthed in that space through the ministry of the word. And quote, by the, and, the, and by the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. And so the catechism and the confession are nearly saying the same thing there. And because question 93 and on through 94 and 95 and, and beyond that, And the point is, is that we need to understand that the word is unique and it holds a special place, even among the other means of grace, because it is a converting 
and a strengthening means. The other means of grace aren't converting means. They are strengthening means only. And that happens because the strengthening and confirming means of faith come after one has already been converted. It comes after one has been born again and is already possessing faith in the Spirit. So I hope that makes sense. Because we as confessing Christians should exalt the Word to the position that it deserves. I, I tell you, if, if you want a clear tale sign, warning sign, about a person who might be on the verge of apostatizing, consider how their walk, doctrine of the Word is developing. It's a clue. But we should be aware of the significance of the Word and the historic Protestant and Reformed confessions say some good things worth considering about the Word of God. Baptism and and the Lord's Supper come after the Word. They depend on the Word for their meaning and efficacy. I mean, think in many ways. uh, Without the Word, what does baptism mean even? Imagine you're visiting a fellowship church, for example, and I mention them because I've, I've seen how they do baptism. They have some music playing on the screen, and they're showing people being baptized outside, usually massive amounts of people because they have hyped up the ordinance, and they made it more about you than God. And so there's, it's, of course, why so many are willing to go forward because it's, it's self-promotion with these kinds of places. And so imagine you come in late, and the music is loud, and people are singing, and you're watching people get dunked so that you might be able at that point, to surmise that it symbolizes something like washing or something like that. But if there's no word accompanying it, if there's no connection to Christ, to his work without the word, then what do you make of that whole scene? And so that's why whenever we have a baptism service, we have the word come first. There is preaching of the word and an explanation of the baptism because the baptism pictures the word. But with signs and not actually the words. And so the word precedes it. And so even while you partake of the action of baptism, the word is accompanying it, right? The, the pastor who is doing, performing the sacrament is speaking at the same time as it's happening to fill you in with what's happening. So that's why it's not a good idea, I think, to just have some hyped up Christian music playing on a screen while you can't even hear anything that's happening. And just seen as this, you know, this almost a magical rite is what they kind of turn into when they do that. And same thing with the Lord's Supper, right? We celebrate and we feast. It's, it's a spiritual and theological feast. Nobody's getting full off that little piece of bread and little cup of wine, right? But we do that after it's explained and after we have the context of it. We're thinking about Christ as we do it. We're thinking about who he is and what he did, and being reminded that he's coming again with our present union with him and what that means of us. And then we partake of the bread and wine. It's accompanied by the word, and even itself is, you know, it's a visible representation of the word. And so if you're ever at a church where they don't have the word preceding the supper, I would, I would caution you in participating. I hope, you know, when I go other places, on vacation, so I travel, we try to go to visit other churches, and been a couple times when I've come across situations where that type of thing happens. Because what we're saying about the word in those cases when we participate without having the word preceding it is saying that the word doesn't really matter. And you're just using it again, turned to some sort of a magical rite. It's no different than how the Roman Catholics really look at their sacraments. 
So like I said, I've been to two churches that have done just that. They just tacked on the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, almost as an afterthought. A church in Arizona where the pastor finished his sermon, if you could call it that. And then when the last song came around, around came the trays with bread and juice. And it was surprising even. We just let it pass us by. And then we had some young people in our congregation who were also attending like this cool and hip church out in Livermore um, Valley or something, Valley Church, Valley Christian. And so at the end of the sermon there, and they were in the, the benediction, you were encouraged to grab some bread and wine on the way out. And they had them conveniently placed on stands near the back door, but no explanation of what they were, no word about the significance of it. I remember hearing the story of, about Robert Godfrey, who's the president of Westminster Seminary in the California branch. And he was with another professor, and he was visiting this, supposedly this is well-respected, um, reformed congregation. And at the end of the church service, they were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when it came to Dr. Godfrey, he refused to participate with the supper. And the other professor that was there asked him why. And he said it was because the gospel wasn't proclaimed. That if you're going, can you imagine taking the Lord's Supper and not proclaiming the gospel? I mean, you're proclaiming his death by which we have the good news even every time you do it. But how can you do it without saying it? It needs to be said as well, too. Uh, Dr. Godfrey understands, and he's confessional, he understands that the sacrament has to come after the word. The word gives meaning and explains and sets forth the grace in these other means, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You might even be reminded of that quote that gets attributed to uh, St. Francis. I don't know that it actually is his quote, but he says it's attributed to him. And it says that, you know, preach the gospel and whenever necessary, use words. I don't, it's probably not actually his quote, but nevertheless, you always need to use words when you preach the gospel. That, that's the point, because the word, especially the preached word, is a means of grace made effectual to our salvation. This is how the Reformers and the Puritans really spoke about the two main public and corporate sacraments, that they were the word, I'm talking about baptism and Lord's Supper here, the gospel in a visible and tangible form. But again, we can only understand that visible and tangible form because we've had the gospel in auditory form in the explanation of the word of God. And so this emphasizes the primacy of the word in the means of grace. And we need to think of it and, you know, we really need to, to respond to the word within our own lives as well. Certainly, that's where question 95 is going to take us. But not only do we have the primacy of the word, but it's, it's the primacy of the preached word. This is another aspect that the Reformers and the Puritans emphasize regularly. They would always assist upon this. And this is especially where we are at odds with the broader evangelical world to an extent with the primacy of the preached word. So public preaching versus private reading. So now you can see even with the catechism here, and that's the answer in 94, you know how the, the spirit makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effective means of convincing and converting sinners. And so it gives even a special primacy to the preached word, even over the read word. And this is very much a step with the scriptures. This is a, there's a pretty good and clear example of this in scripture and the primacy of the preached word, the word handled by the God-appointed man. And so Acts chapter 8, if you want to turn there, 
Acts chapter 8, not the first part of it, although the first part of it um, eludes to my point as well. But the latter half is where we have the conversation of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So hopefully you remember that story some. Acts 8 verse 40, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Uh, Philip was a deacon. He served the church in that office, and he also spent a lot of time doing evangelism. That is within a job of a deacon. He was Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist, same person, same, same necessity of holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He was gifted in that regard even. And so as we pick up um, and we see that he was authorized by the church to go and proclaim the gospel, as we see in verse 4 in that chapter um, 8, and then also verse 40, as we, as we just, just read a moment ago. But look at verse 26. This is where we pick this up. And it's interesting to see this parallel played out between the reading and then the actual proclamation of the word of God by an authorized messenger. So eight, Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He came to Jerusalem to worship. So he's not a Jew, you know. But he was what we would call a God-fearer at this time, someone who perhaps hadn't really converted to Judaism, but yet he feared the God of the Jews. We meet these kinds of people a few times in this letter of Acts, in this transitionary period between the Old and New Covenants. And so he's worshiping God in Jerusalem. And then verse 28, we read, And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He was, he was reading out loud. It's just how they did things, it seems, even when they, were, when they were alone. There's no command in God's word that it must be read out loud, but it's never bad to do so, again, because of what the word is and how God may choose to act in it. And so here's this man actually reading out loud. He's by himself. And Philip asks him, continuing on in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And he, the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He's pretty humble, right? Uh, much different than most today, even within the church. And so he invites Philip to come and to sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. It was Isaiah 53, uh, very, I think verse 4. It's a very appropriate passage. And then the eunuch, verse 34, he says to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So now here's this Ethiopian eunuch reading inspired scripture. He's reading Isaiah 53, and this isn't some total anomaly or anything like that. It's perhaps not the ordinary way that God works, but he's free to do so. Now you hear about stories of this kind of thing happening, really. My own story is a little bit like it even. I had taken up a Bible that I found at my mother's apartment that was now my apartment because she had moved out, and I was reading it of my own accord 
purely to be able to mock my Christian friends who, who weren't really Christians, but they said they were, and I enjoyed you know, digging into them about that. And so I picked it up and I started reading. But you hear stories of people like this as well too, maybe like picking up a Gideon Bible in a hotel room. I don't know if they have those in hotels still. if They've been all but removed, I think. But they used to have them in every hotel room. And then after that, they, they come through faith and they pursue joining a church. Maybe they've gone through a crisis or they've heard the gospel at previous times. It's possible. And remember, even the confession was careful to leave room for those kinds of things in chapter 14, article 1. There are exceptions to how God usually or ordinarily does things. But normally, this is the pattern, the, the preached word. You know, people open up the word of God and they read, and sometimes they don't understand what they mean. Do you always understand every time you're reading the text? I mean, it never fails in Sunday school or in family worship. We'll read something and then I'll ask, did you understand that or do you have any questions? And the answer is always, no, I, under, I don't have any questions. I totally understood that. And then you ask something specific and it's like, I don't know. <laughs> but it, ne- it never fails. Well, how can we understand unless someone guides us? Scripture isn't of any private interpretation. It's for the whole church. And God has given to the church people to preach and teach, to build up his church for the work of ministry. It has nothing to do with the man who holds the office. You always feel kind of weird talking about this as the one who was doing the preaching, especially at the time. It has nothing to do with me. It's the gifting and the grace of God. And again, it's why it's so important to have a plurality of elders and to hold to a detailed confession that is subservient to the scriptures because then you know where the man is coming from. Then you understand how it is that he's viewing the scriptures. There's safety in that. And God continues in his church to authorize men to proclaim his gospel in this sort of official and authoritative sense. That's why it's necessary to preach the word of God, not our own ideas. That's, why we, that's what we see in Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. But we see this pattern confirmed in other places as well. In Scripture, Romans 10 is a good place to consider. We'll turn over another chapter to Romans 10. Verse 13, the, the gospel is for all who believe. Salvation is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And then verse 14, we'll read to 17. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? So in other words, they have to have faith before they call on God. Continuing on, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? In other words, how can I believe in Christ if I've never heard of Christ? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Someone needs to be sent. Sent from God, often in conjunction with the church, just like we saw with Philip earlier in Acts. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ, the word of God. So it's amazing to see those chain of events. And it goes all the way to, you know, to sent preachers to those whom God himself sends, God's official representatives and messengers, and God is speaking through them. And that brings faith, which leads men to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's a means of grace, and God ordains the means even. This is very similar to what we see in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following. Ephesians 4 speaks of these authorized messengers again, and it speaks of Christ ascending to heaven and giving gifts to men. Think even back of um, 
back to that Ephesians 2 passage we read earlier, when we were, we were wondering how it is that Christ came and preached peace to them, I said, there's no way he would have came down as like a second coming, but not really the second coming, to preach the gospel to them. No, he doesn't need to, because Christ ascended, we read here in verse 10 in chapter 4, and he gave gifts to men. This is how he's working. So verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so when does it start? It starts with God giving the church, these pastors and other kinds of teachers, with God appointing men to these roles to teach the body, to preach to the body, especially the preached word. So the body of Christ can do two primary things, that it could do the work of ministry and build each other up and to protect us from false teaching, from human cunning and craftiness and from deceitful schemes. And so there's this consistent pattern in Scripture. There's an emphasis on the Word of God preached by authorized and called messengers. The primacy goes to the preached Word. And that's where we still need to place the emphasis. Not in our small groups, not in our private readings. Those are both good things. Don't hear me wrong about that. But they're different than having the emphasis of having the whole body gathered to enjoy and benefit from the means of grace that is the preached Word in a in the corporate context especially. So it goes out to everyone, not just a select few, because everyone needs it, not just the little the group. You know, we're, we're quite privileged even to have the Word of God so that we can have times of private reading. That hasn't been the experience for the bulk of the church in the time of the New Covenant over the last 2,000 years. For one, I mean, not many people were able to read. Two, not many people could afford a Bible. And then three... There was not a mass existence of Bibles until after the printing press really came around and made that an affordable type of a thing. It's a benefit we have in our modern generations. And understanding the importance, the importance and the primacy of the Word of God should compel us to take advantage of that. We do have the Word now. And so private reading is definitely a very good thing to do. We'd be fools not to do so even. But we can't let this notion of a personal piety overtake the means of grace in preaching. For example, it would be a bad idea to stay home on a Sunday morning and evening and to think to yourself that you could just read the Bible to yourself and that's sufficient worship and activity in place of sitting under preaching. Modern Christianity tends to think that the real work of God happens in our private times. You know, just you and Jesus. Or it happens in our, in our small groups. That's where really we get the discipleship going. There is this personal piety that just consumes our culture now. And it's not that small groups or personal quiet times with the Lord are bad necessarily. They're just not as good as the church gathered to do what Ephesians 4 says. It's just not as good. Why Why choose the less good thing when you could have the great thing? 
Scripture, the catechism, the confession, the emphasis of the ministry of the word is placed on the preaching of the word. And sometimes even whole churches can drop the ball in this regard. Uh, it's weird thinking of it, but like Francis Chan, who was this evangelical darling only about 10 to 12 years ago, uh, his book, Crazy Love, was just promoted heavily by all kinds of Christians. But something happened, and he closed down his church in favor of meeting in home groups. And now, you know, he's one that should be marked and avoided. And don't have time to get into all of that. It's hard to say what happened exactly, but there's a clear misunderstanding and undervaluing of the means of grace going on there, and especially in context of the preached word. Unless he had, you know, if they broke down to 30, because it was a mega church, a huge church, unless they had like 40 home groups and each one had its own, you know, ordained minister, but I doubt it. I think it was just discussions about the Bible. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? Other churches do some weird things that sound good, but they really aren't good. I have a friend who lived in a, or was involved in a church in Idaho, and when I found out about this, I encouraged them to look for another church. They didn't, but eventually the church closed its doors anyway. I'm not surprised. And so what this church would do is they would take every fifth Sunday, and instead of having a worship service, the church would assemble and then go out and do good works. So they would neglect the means of grace of the Lord's Supper and the preached word and potentially a baptism. They would just move that, of course. And technically speaking, I mean, doing good works is appropriate to do on the Sabbath, but not in place of the ministry of the word and the visible word. Good works do shine forth God's glory, but even they need to be fueled and energized by God's word. God's word is primary. The idea that says there is no use for the church, you know, it's just me and my Bible and I can read it on my own or with my certain group of friends. It, it takes the emphasis off the word and it places it on our preference, not on God's ordained act of worship, and especially so on the Lord's day. We're not actually commanded in scripture anywhere, to my knowledge at least, to read the word of God daily. Again, we can, so we should, but let's not put a heavy yoke on ourselves about it. If people were commanded to read the word of God in daily private readings, as if that was the main source of sanctifying you, as if that was the main source of causing you to grow in Christ, well, then that would mean that much of the church was anemic for much of human history because it wasn't easy to have a Bible for everyone. And so what you would have happen, this is how God has grown his church over the centuries, is that the church would gather on the Lord's day, morning and evening, and, the, and then appointed men would preach and teach, and the saints would prayerfully meditate upon that word throughout the week. Perhaps there would be a midweek service where the whole church gathered, if they were able, meeting for more of the means of grace and, and sustenance that, it, that they provide. And we know that was the case with the Reformers and the Puritans especially. Uh, it's slowly going the way of the dodo in our culture today, if, if it's not already extinct. But the church wasn't dependent upon their small group or personal private devotion for their sanctification in the same way that's emphasized today. It's the preached word that they would let dwell in them richly and meditate upon that. If you would like a good Puritan take on this, I would commend to you a booklet. You can actually read it online for free as well, but it's Puritan, so it's not a super easy read, but it's still helpful. Uh, you can, it's by a man named David Clarkson. It's called Public Worship to be Preferred Over Private. It's a good read. Not that private worship is bad, but the emphasis on the word is on the preaching of the word. And that's done with the whole body ordinarily. 
Now, question 95 is more applicational, and this is really where you understand that often Christian principle, that although God is primary in acting, he is the main actor, we do have a holy responsibility. We respond to what we know to be true because God has first worked in us. First comes the gospel, first comes the grace, and that enables us to look at living in such a way through God's law, the things he tells us to do, as a way to glorify him, not something that we hinge our salvation on or that we hinge our justification on. A responsibility rooted in grace and dependent on God so that we may not boast even. But this is, once again, one of those questions and answers, and really all of them are worthy for memorization, but this one especially is, and even to think that as we're coming to worship, are we preparing to hear the word read and preached to remember this? Often, you might hear, Nick did it tonight, he preached, you know, for me as I would be teaching, or he prayed for me as I would be teaching. And, and another thing that we should also be praying for is praying for us as we'd be hearing as well. There's two sides to that, to that coin. So question 95, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? So you see, this is the opposite side of the coin in question to answer 94. How is the word made effectual? Well, it's by the Spirit. Yet at the same time, when we come, we just don't sit and drool and act mindlessly. And then somehow, through some spiritual magic or something like that, the preaching of the word just does its work. That's the Roman Catholic view, essentially. That's thinking of the means of grace as ex opere operata. No, there's much in Scripture that instructs us to be very careful in how we read and sit under the word of God. Even when it comes to the reading of the word of God in your private time. If you approach your reading of the word of God in your private time, like you're just checking off a box of this needed amount of pages or chapters I need to do today, and the mind is elsewhere, and then somehow it's going to be made effectual? Well, no, that's the wrong idea. I, I, I remember a kid or a family that has, who's, his, the dad was adamant about making his children read specific amounts of chapters throughout the day, and, and I get it. It's God's word. God's word does not go back, come back void, right? God's, God is working through the means of grace, in his word, but a person has to first have faith. But those kids were eventually, you know, they hated the Bible is what they would tell me. They didn't like doing it. And so there has to be wisdom applied to this because the word is made effectual by the spirit that we have. And at the same time, when we have the spirit, we should think about how we take in the word. The scripture would instruct us to read it in a certain way. So here's how question 95 answers it. That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. So it's a wonderful answer worthy of uh, memorization, isn't it? It's from beginning to end. The whole process, even before we come to hear or read the word of God, we're praying and we're asking for God for help in the process. We're not so boastful and so bold to think that we come to the word of God in our own strength, right? We come in a childlike dependence upon our father who is happy to sanctify us and bless us through the means of grace that he has ordained for us. We are praying while we're hearing or reading the word of God even. We're attending to it diligently. We're receiving it with faith. We're believing it because we know it's the word of God. We receive it with faith and love. And I think here the reference here to to love is, you know, it's to love the word of God actually. To love the truth, as that's said in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, One of the things that they're condemned for in that section is for not loving the truth. 
And so we, we love the truth. We receive it with faith and joy, believing in the word of God, but actually loving and loving the word of God that he's given to us, laying it up in our hearts so that it's basically a way of saying that we're meditating upon it as well. It's not just some word that is preached and then we forget about it. Same thing with reading. We don't just read it and then forget about it. We want to dwell upon it. That's important too. Keep it in your heart. Keep it in your mind so it's not just in and out. What the Apostle Paul calls in Colossians 3 saying, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. And then practicing in our lives when it's obviously the word has not been heard well and attended to. If it doesn't, if it's not practiced, then it won't result in our obedience or some change within us when we don't listen well. And so it's just an excellent answer. But there are, you know, the scriptures that bear all this sort of thing out so that the word of God is made profitable. We should attend to it with diligence as some of those that heard Christ there in Luke 19 and elsewhere. We should be inquisitive to the meaning of the word. Uh, Think of, again, Acts 8, which we read earlier, and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he says, well, about whom is the prophet saying this? About himself or about some other man? He's, He's thinking about the word. He's inquisitive about it. So, you know, even especially if we're just reading uh, by ourselves or reading on our own and you don't really understand what is meant by it, well, find out. Take the time to find out. Don't just gloss over that part. Well, I don't really understand that. I'm just going to gloss over it and just think about it some other time. Slow yourself down. Find out. Go online. Even better, call a friend. Text a friend. I love, I love I don't want to bother you, Pastor, but uh, what do you think this means? You're not bothering me at all. This is, this is what I love to talk about. And compare one scripture with another scripture. You know, pairing spiritual things with other spiritual things, of course, utilizing the analogy of faith, taking a text that is not plain and looking at it in light of those that are plain. And so let's just look at some of these verses that are listed in the catechism. They're on that sheet if you have them. The first one speaks about preparation. We need to give ourselves with diligence to preparation. And that's 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. And we'll go quick through here. I know we're short on time. 1 Peter, yes, ma'am. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Even retain that language, made effectual salvation, right? The word of God has that aspect. And so, you know, we shouldn't think that if we're going to just indulge our sin and just live carnal, not prepare to hear the word, you know, it's, it's a good idea to let's keep it, you know, easy and safe and clean. Maybe don't stay up watching TV all night on Saturday and then come to church on Sunday morning expecting to really draw in on the word of God. We have to have some, pre- there has to be some preparation. Certainly putting to death sin that remains and all the types of things that are listed here in 1 Peter 2.1 is, is good advice as well. But there, there needs to be a preparation. In my own family, what we try to do is we attend together on Saturday evening before we go to bed and we try to then focus on not on the things that are in the world and things for the week, but on God's word. And we have a short time of family devotion. We read this little book together. It's not very long. And we pray. And then Sunday morning when we get up, we talk about church in, in the morning and we read the text that's going to be preached on. Again, it's part of preparing and, and so that we are we're coming to hear the word ready. John Calvin has a really good quote where he says that the, the main problem in, in the church, in his congregation, was that he felt like people were just not prepared to hear. 
They just came, and, and he, he lived in a sacral society, so there's all kinds of other things going on at that time. But there was a void of listening well in his people. And part of that is, is preparing in, through specific ways. One of those specific ways would be through prayer. That's the next item listed on the list. And it wants us to look at Psalm 119, verse 18. So you could turn back to 119, eight, Psalm 119, 18. Psalm 119 is that very long psalm, so I have to turn like three pages just to get to verse 18. Okay, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So the, the psalm, is, and this Psalm 119 is filled with nuggets really that are like that. And it, the point that he's saying, he's, he's prayerfully asking the Lord to open up his eyes that he may behold. Eyes that see, ears that hear. Who is that a gift from? It's from the Lord, Right? And so praying to the Lord, asking for understanding, that's why we always make that part of our service in the morning during the pastoral prayer, where we're praying that the Lord would help us understand. We don't approach God's word with, in a boastful attitude. We can't go boldly to the throne of God's grace, but we go understanding that we need God. And so we depend upon him to reveal to us what it is that his word really means, because it is his means of grace. Secondly, or thirdly, I should say, we receive it with faith and love. How do you receive the word of God? Do you receive it with, oh, I don't believe that. Are you a skeptic all the time? And we should be skeptical at times because sometimes depending on who the teacher is and what they're saying. But ultimately, when it's, when it's your church family, you, you trust what's happening here at the, in this ministry. You're, you, you're the person who is preaching has shown themselves to be a faithful expositor of the word. Is your disposition generally to be a critic or is it to receive it with joy and gladness? And you can receive it with joy and gladness and still be critical. Don't misunderstand me. But we want to, we want to receive it with joy and gladness because it is God's word. So Hebrews 4, 2. <clears throat> For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Okay? Faith binds all of us. If we, if we have faith, if we have the Spirit, that same Spirit that is given to me is given to anyone else who is saved as well too. And that binds us together. And when the Word is preached, we receive it through that faith that He has given to us and we, we love it. Again, I mentioned 2 Thessalonians 2 earlier. Let me read that for you. That verse is also cited here. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Remember, this is in the command of those, or in the context of those people in the congregation who were opposed to what God's word said. So verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You know, when we hear the word of God preached, do we love to hear that? I've, so I've often done this twice, where I've had a person um, out like evangelizing and they try to uh, share the gospel with me. And I kind of play dumb at first because I want to hear well, what they're going to say. But in reality, I, just, I, love to, I, just, I want to hear the word preached right. Like, I'm excited when that happens. Sometimes they don't like that very well, very much or not. But you, want to, you love God's word because it reveals who God is. Again, it's that means of grace. And then I think the, um, the catechism or the... the 
the website that I copied it off and pasted it into our website on has the verse citation wrong here. Um, I don't think it's Psalm 119, verse 18 again. I think it's verse 11. This is that we're supposed to lay up God's word in our heart. Well, that's, I think, that famous passage that we probably know. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 11. Again, we, we don't just let the word come. We don't intend. Sometimes we can't stop it, right? But we don't intend to let the word come in and then just go out. We want it to fill our hearts. We want it to be a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. We want it to instruct us on how it is that we should glorify and love the Lord. And, for, and in doing so, it acts as a means of sanctifying us and, and helping us to turn from our sin. And then lastly, we practice it in our lives. And actually, for sake of time, let's, let's just go to the James passage. James 1. 22, and we'll, or we'll actually, it's verse 25, but let's read from 22. Okay, when, when the word is preached, we don't want to be people who just hear and then that's it. So James 1, 23 to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intensely at his natural face in a mirror. And then he looks, away, and he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So when we listen, we, we think about the word that was preached and we think to ourselves, how can I put this in play in my life. We don't need, you don't need to wait on the pastor to tell you how to apply the word to your life. There's, I've heard R.C. Sproul, I believe, say that there is one interpretation of Scripture, but millions of applications from, from the verse. And so how is the spirit that you possess convicting you and encouraging you on how you should then live because of the word that was preached or read even as well too? So, so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to think about these, this, this simple catechism answer and to think about it. Maybe every Saturday night or Sunday morning before you come to gather or in the evening after your lunch, to think about, I'm going to come back to church this evening and we're going to hear the word preached. And God has ordained this for my benefit, making it effectual to my salvation, growing me in grace, sanctifying me, how the fact that God does it is glorious and we are blessed because of it and how we respond plays a part in it as well too. So let me pray and then we can field any questions that we have. Father in heaven, we do thank you for time in your word and we only begin to understand the importance of it in our lives, Lord. And we pray that for however many years you do give us on your earth, that you would conform us all the more to Christ and his word and that you would give us greater faith, able to digest your word more and to retain it more, Lord. Please, for the glory of your son, uh, remove worthless things from our minds and from our hearts and fill it with your beloved word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, anyway, I can try to make things clear or any questions or comments? I was really grateful that you uh, explained the uh, means of grace when it came to baptism and uh, just the word itself and 
know, the sacraments, because just coming from our old church, it was, I used to wrestle a lot with Jim over those terms, like, it was, when I would say means of grace, I would even bring up the law, and he'd say, well, that's work salvation. I'd say, no. Uh -huh. you know, not everyone even, you know, faith comes by hearing, by hearing by the word of God, right? So it's the grace of God to even hear that you're a sinner, right? So Paul said, I would not have known sin if it weren't for the law, right? Absolutely. So, you know, the law, the word, obviously, the word, the law is in the word, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, just sacraments, how would you, I guess, I want to say I was grateful for that. And then how would you express that to people who stumble over those terms, who come out of Roman Catholicism, because, like, how would you tell people that, that just in a historic short answer yeah. of sacraments? You know? So, I would try, this is something that I think just comes through time studying, because it is, it is a bit confusing, but the thing that makes the most sense to me is that if you're coming out of a Roman Catholic background, the emphasis is totally on the sacraments themselves. And so, like, that's why you will be, you know, um, in church discipline if you miss the Lord's Supper for so many times. Because, and they'll say that you're, you know, you've committed a, um, the second level, not the highest sin, but the, the lower level of sin. Yeah, venial sins. And so, because the efficacy is in the actual sacraments themselves, whereby the reform or the Christian understanding is that the efficacy is in the spirit who applies it to the person who is spirit-filled. And so that's why, you know, so that's why, so our brothers who baptize infants, Presbyterian brothers who have the gospel right, who I think I only cited Presbyterians even tonight, um, they baptize babies but there's no actual, I would argue, there's no actual, that baptism isn't a means of grace specifically to the child who is being baptized because unless that child is actually saved already and we just don't know it. But it is a means of grace to people who are witnessing it, who are spirit-filled because, again, baptism is more about the promise of God to save. It also is our promise. It also is our profession of saying we have been saved, but it's more about what God has done. So I would just try to speak to them, like with my mom at least, so my mom came out of Roman Catholic background and was trying to be faithful to it in you know, the previous years before she was saved. I tried to explain to her as it's not the actual elements or the actual sacraments, and they have seven in the Roman Catholic Church, that cause something. But it's Christ who lived for you and died for you and his spirit is in you. And so now they mean something because of the faith you have and God who acts. It goes back to our topic even on sanctification, right? It's God who does the sanctifying, so it's the Spirit of God who works. As they fumble over the transubstantiation, where it's the actual body and blood of Christ. Oh yeah, the the graves were just out of Quinceanera, where they were being, where they they didn't take the um, supper there with them, but they were instructed like you can't drop it because you know it's the you're dropping Jesus. You're dropping Jesus. Yes. Yeah. You better lift that off the floor. In the medieval church, they only let the um, the priest was the only one who would take the Lord's Supper because they didn't want the lady to accidentally, you know, bring curses upon that congregation because Christ's blood or body was spilled accidentally. It's like magic. Almost. It is like magic. Yeah, I say it's it puts the the emphasis on like these. You do these right things, and you'll be right with the Lord. Rather than no, you're right with the Lord because of what the Lord has done, and so the Lord works through these means to grow you. And that error has such a practical danger to it because it super focuses you on the actual act of doing it instead of on the purpose of it. 
and the God who's providing grace to you through it. So it's no longer the channel, but it is the end itself. Right. So, so that's that, really, really that, is a dangerous point. Does that kind of go back to what Paul was saying about the exoplanet operata thing? Yeah. Because I haven't heard that term forever, but I think that from what I remember, it's connected, right? Yeah, it's from the works themselves. Okay. Yeah, out of, you know, the works themselves. It becomes a pragmatic thing instead of Christ-centered. Yeah. yeah. I just think people stumble over the term, come out of it. I've been talking to our church where they're like, you know, it's just like catechism. Oh, that's Catholic. Or, you know, sacraments. Oh, that's Catholic. I'm like, no. If you study historically, I guess that's what I was thinking, yeah. but I didn't know if that was We just got to do the work, brother. You look at your shirt. You got to work. <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's the same with us. We, yeah. We've inherited a... Christ Church is still growing even through some of these pragmatic and anemic things that happened in the latter part of the 20th century. But I see a lot of churches now being more faithful. Um, not all churches, of course, but I do see a lot of good happening. And it just takes time. You just got to teach these things and go through them and say, like, look, that's, what, again, why I'm really, you know, want us and excited about... Um, affirming the Second London Confession as our confession of faith, and even some of the old creeds, because we were not just a church that just started existing. First Family Church has a start date, but the church has existed, yes. you know, ever since the gospel was first preached to Adam and Eve. So it's important that we remember that we're not the only ones who have thoughts about this. People have the same spirit as us, and they thought these things as well. And so we could be. We need to. We need to test those things that they that they thought by the Word of God. And I think that's what the Word of God does teach. Again, like, I mean, Christ, he came in Ephesians 2. He came and preached peace to you who are far off. Amen. I, you know, what do you do with that? So, uh, Brendan? Yes, I know earlier in your uh, message you were saying that you're not familiar with any part of the Bible that says you should, I guess, command it to read it. Yeah, uh, command like, to read daily. Daily, yeah. Yeah. So what about Psalms 1 2? What's that supposed to be? Well, no, Psalms 1. Are you but, reading my well, tell me. Well, go ahead and tell me. Um, well, tell me what it says. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not that's a good question. I, I think I, I did say in there that what would typically happen is the saints would gather on Lord's Day, the word would be preached, and the saints would meditate on that throughout the week. Because you just, you know, if, I mean, it's just simple. Most people, for one, if depending on the time when the word was, it was in Latin, and that was the language of a scholarly work and sciences. And so if the, the farmer, the, the plowman, they couldn't even read Latin, even if they had a copy of it, if they could even afford it. And then also, um, you know, I mean, that's the whole, what's the guy's name? It's not a Wycliffe. It's like a, a Bible in the hand, or, very, or is that Luther? Tyndale. It's Tyndale? Tyndale yeah. yeah, and so... The plowman would know the word of God just as much as the yeah, so, so it was just for the simple reality is that for the vast majority of the church's history, I mean, the printing press was only invented in the 16th century. People just didn't have access to the Bible. And so you should, the Christians should have been meditating upon it day and night. It would have been good for them to do that. But they got that when they met and gathered with the church. And they might have had, you know, maybe a copy of a page or something like that. And that would be good to use as well, too. But what we have now, where I have in my office probably like 10 Bibles of different translations, original languages, and in my phone, how many translations, and I have it with me all the times. I have apps that like help me to memorize, like give me reminders to say it's time to do it. 
we should take advantage of that. People haven't had that type of thing, though, until recently. Yeah? Hey, uh, even on the following, that, would it be, uh, I, guess a, I guess, a good parallel? I don't know if it is or isn't. But, like, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant Church, how God gave them the command to uh, do sacrifice, atonement offerings, you know, sin offerings, grain offerings, all that stuff. But when, you know, the children of Israel were in, like, rebellion, they were put into captivity. So I'm sure God didn't say, okay, well, since you guys don't have a temple to worship and do sacrifices, then you could go ahead and just forget about the sacrificing laws. So it's like a yeah. thing that God commanded, and that's regard, it doesn't really matter if you have a temple to worship in, it's still commanded. Wouldn't that be the same thing for like Psalms 1 2? Even though it wasn't readily available, the people should be meditating on it, like themselves. How do you meditate on it? Well, that, that's a little tough, too, just because we're, now we're dealing with the complexities of the Old Covenant worship system, which was, not, which was for everybody in the Old Covenant, not just those who were saved. So I think that there are people in the Old Covenant who, weren't able, who were actually truly saved, who weren't able to attend to the Old Covenant rites and ceremonies, and yet they weren't being judged by God for not being able to do that because they were in that place of judgment as a nation already for disobedience in the first place. And so it's a, little, it's a little bit more complex than that. What I was thinking as, as you were talking, I was thinking of the Shema, and where we learn in Deuteronomy 6, and where God instructs um, everyone in Israel to know the Lord their God and to write it about on, this door, on their doorposts and put in those phylacteries. And so, again, if you're meditating, meditating upon the word, you're hearing it preached and taught, sure, write some of that down. Keep it. But, I mean, you, we don't have access to the whole word written. You should definitely do things to encourage memorization and meditation upon God's word. But my only point in that was just say that there's not a command in the Bible to say that you must read your Bible. You must read three chapters of the Bible in a day so that you will grow in Christ. That's not what we see. Because if that was the case, then the church would be anemic for, you know, 1,600 years or something like that. And Psalm so, 1-2 doesn't say read your Bible every day. It says meditate. Meditate, yeah. So that word has meaning. And you don't want to change the meaning to fit a modern understanding of what Christians ought to do and then make it into a law that's not proclaimed in the Scriptures. To meditate, you don't have to have the Bible in front of you to be meditating on the Word of God. You, know, you can be meditating on the Word of God when you're driving to work on your commute. You know, just thinking about the things that the word says or trying to apply yeah. the things that were preached to you out of the word in your own life and figuring out how you can be obedient to that. So that's meditation on the word. So we, we should be careful not to say, well, what meditate means is four chapters a day or whatever. Well, and I, I mentioned something about that too. Like, we don't want to be the type of people who just, I read my four chapters and then boom, shut the book. I didn't really think about it as I was reading it and now I'm not going to think about it afterwards. It, it that's not the that point of reading. Problem. It kind does. Kind of like the sacrosanctum yeah. stuff we were talking about that the Roman Catholic Church does. It's, yeah. The object of, is actually the thing itself, doing the thing instead of the work that God is doing. Doing through it. Amen. One of the things I always try to even think about because what we tend to do in our culture, which again is very, we, we tend to say it's, you know, it's me and my Bible. I have my quiet time and that's the means by which God grows me. Well, what happens when we tend to do that sometimes too is we tend to err on the, on the side of legalism. And then we think like, oh, you know, I'll, well, I didn't read my Bible for these past three days. And now God is displeased with me. And this bad thing happened, well, it's because I didn't read my Bible. Well, that's not necessarily the case at all. You know, you don't want to view your Bible reading as your place of being right with the Lord. And we have the tendency to just do that, unfortunately. That's just the culture that we 
have grown up in and, and haven't, you know, been a part of the church in. But so I, I want to push away from that and say, absolutely, hey, if you can read your Bible, go ahead and please do it. It's much better than much of the things that you're going to do, right? But don't let it be the standard of righteousness in your life, that, that I did this this day, and now I'm good with God because I did that. And there this, or I had this good day because I did do that. Those things aren't necessarily related. I was going to ask too, I think, we'll go back to you, Brandon. Do you think it comes down to conviction, too? Because, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think it comes down, comes down to conviction? Like, when it comes to, like, certain people say, okay, uh, I remember MacArthur talked about this years ago. He said, uh, there's some people who think it's a sin if you don't read your Bible every day. There's some people who think that it's not, right? Oof, that's a heavy burden. It is a heavy burden, yeah. but I, I think, too, do you think it comes down to conviction as far as, uh, is, it a, is it a personal matter? Like, if, it's one thing for somebody to say, it's a sin for me not to do it, but it's another thing. It's a sin, says, for, I would say this, it's a sin for you to neglect the Lord's Day. It's a sin for yeah. you to break the fourth commandment. But I'm saying yeah. a personal conviction can be different from saying, I'm breaking God's law if I don't read the word, but... Versus somebody saying, I'm convicted that I believe the Lord wants me to utilize. Like, how are you going to hide God's word in your heart if you're not spending time there, right? How are you Absolutely, gonna, yeah. How are you not going to How are you going to meditate on the book like the Joshua passage, book of the law should not depart from your Bible? Well, and I, I, ironically, our hearts want to hide from God's word, and so we have to do the hard work of hiding His word in our heart because our heart's disposition is tent is normally to hide from God's word. Because as sinners, we can take the other extreme. Mm-hmm. Like a pastor, take like what you said, right? Someone take it totally out of context. That would be on them. Say, my pastor said, I want three Bible, right? Which right. is that's not what you said, right? No. Yeah. But I'm saying that sinners, you'd be a fool to do so. Is what I said. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I think just for me personally, I get convicted that the Lord has given me a good memory, and I want to be a blessing to God's people. I want to be. I want to be able to fight and battle sin in my own life. So trying to take that time relentlessly to memorize and to do those things is kind of a personal conviction that I have versus somebody else may not have that same conviction. I, I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it should be a conviction I think that we should try to fan that flame yeah. in our lives. You know? I think if you know the Lord, that means you love his word. You love the truth. And so there's at least some level of wanting to know his, his word. And I might go through valleys and peaks over the years, but that's something that you should try to fan. That, that's a flame that should try to be fanned, to, to let his word dwell in us like that. So uh, what is it? Um, people said as Charles Spurgeon that if you cut him, like scripture would come out, <laughs> right? Like th- that's, that's what we should want. You know? But I remember when you first said that, So I went back and I studied it, and all I saw these Puritan writings. It's not a sin that I read your Bible, but coming out of a fundamentalist church, you hear that's yeah. all you hear, right? Oh yeah, there's there. You don't read your Bible, right? You there are there are hymns that are just about like you're you and your quiet time with Jesus. Like it's this. They, that's why think of it, we've we've got rid of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, and we're thankfully we do it like once a month here. Some churches don't do it that long, but you know what? In those churches that barely ever do the Lord's Supper, you know what they do every week? An altar call. That's the new piety 
grace. Means of grace, yeah. yeah. It's all about it puts the intention on you. So look what you did. It's the same thing that we see being played out. It, the, the, the emphasis is off God. It's on, it's on you, Yes. unfortunately. Well, I was going to say, yeah. the testimony that that helped me so much because I still have a conviction via the word, but I'm not, I mean, the Lord will remind me when I've gone a couple, three, four days and, you know, grace is coming to a halt. And I'm not happy for it. I'm like, well, I haven't picked up my Bible. I haven't been in prayer. You know, I, I can see myself drifting, right? That's different from just having this, I'm not right with God. This didn't go right. Well, I didn't read. And, you know, yeah. those things slip into our minds, even of those of us who know better. Mm -hmm. So that really, when you said that to me, I just wanted to share a testimony how much of a blessing it was to just remind myself that I'm free in Christ, you know, that I've truly been set free. Amen. Free and in then, Christ. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't, it doesn't depend on my performance. So it's like, don't I know this already, right? Brandon, you had... Those two questions on two different topics, but um, one of them is a follow-up. I know earlier um, you were talking about, like, how throughout church history... Bible were not common. So oftentimes all people hear from the word is their um, Sunday service that they were having together. And yet today it's polar opposite where you have Sunday service in a lot of churches, you know, locally, online, and many Bibles you could buy and not even expensive. And yet, at least from what I'm understanding, it seems that people are so biblically illiterate, no knowledge, on a time where there's plenty of access to the word, yet sure. opposite back then, it seems that people had that hunger and knowledge of the word. But it's split. Why is that? I don't know that I can really answer that question, to be honest. I, so I guess if I was just trying to make a guess, I would say that we only see from history what's been retained for us. We don't see all the ignorant, we don't see all the ignorant people. That, that I mean, if you look back, look at the state of, look, there was a need for the Reformation, right? Because over time, it had become so corrupt that it was just not Christianity anymore. So there definitely were a lot of bright spots. And we, God has preserved their writings and their work as far as we could go and we could read Augustine. We could take up Aquinas and we could throw out some of the stuff that we don't believe with these people because it doesn't line up with the word. But other stuff that does, we embrace. And so there is a big problem today, though, with, like I said, like the word is still readily available and yet people are biblically illiterate. And um, that's sad. I think it's often because of a, a lack of viewing the means of grace in a way that like Nick preached on two weeks ago. If people thought of it like that, if these things like that, then I think we would do things differently. Okay. And the second one is, uh, earlier you made the comment on, uh, if you're like in service and you have kids that are distracting that you're still being blessed for having kids in service. So the question is, is there any place, I guess, in your understanding for like nurseries during worship service or should it be fully inclusive even if your kids are just, you know, not paying attention or being distracted? Yeah, uh, I know there's no Bible verse that says it, right? But I mean, like if you read Ephesians 6, it just assumes kids are there because it just, all of a sudden he just addresses kids in the reading of that letter. And so I think a nursery is, is a helpful thing if you can do it, right? You might not need to. And thankfully at, at here we have like, there's a live stream in there. So they're still being part of it. Other churches that have more money and a better place than us, they have like these cry rooms where it's like a room that is off the, the main room that you can still see in and be a part of it. Um, we try to do that somewhat with the fellowship hall and that room upstairs up there like that as well, too. But at the same time, you know, it's part of we're training our children up. And so if your child is acting like a child normally does, dad, take your baby out. Go talk to him outside. Calm down. Come back in. You might have to do it a few times. Get out that rod if it's necessary. John's, John's, got, John's got one for you if you didn't bring yours. 
And then, but that's part of just training them up. And it's just understand too that it's a season. It's not going to be for a long time. Amen. It's just for a little bit. You know. And then family worship should be a time when we're getting that kind of stuff done at home, right? It them. is. It tries to, to build them up in that. But I mean, family worship, at least because it's hard when you have a span of kids in such a big age range. So you have to kind of do it quick because there are those little kids in there that aren't there but you just work with them through it and again maybe they're not paying attention maybe they're you know doodling a little bit but we also understand that it is god's word being preached and that could be working on them as well even if you think it's not so they're hearing it even though you don't think they are right they're hearing it yeah you you had a comment or question Amen. Anything else? I have a question. Okay. Um, you were talking about how if you don't take the sacraments, how you can get on church discipline. In Rome. In Rome. Well, but in here too, right? Me, I lost yeah. my membership at yeah, the yeah. church sure. because of that. So how do you guys know if somebody's taken them or not? Well, we hopefully just know because we're engaged with the lives of the people but i mean one of the thing is the main reason why a protestant church does church discipline probably in our modern culture is because people just stop coming and so if you stop coming well then you're not participating in the means of grace anyways right and so if you haven't been at church for a long time should we think that you're actually a believer well the odds are pretty low that you're not or pretty high that you're not and so that you would go through the church discipline process at that point but you know, even here, and part of the problem is, and I hate this actually, because there are a couple people that I know of that don't take the Lord's Supper some days, and the reason for that is because it has they've been ingrained to think that the Lord's Supper is something that you do when you are at a place ready to do it, and they don't understand that it's a means of grace. And so one of the like reform, like so we always have a time of self examination before you take the Lord's Supper. Well, and we say it every time. But you're not at that point thinking about every sin that you've ever done and trying to ask for forgiveness of it. And you have to get all that stuff out of the way before you come. If that was the case, you actually never could do it because you're not even aware of all the times that you've sinned and how many times the Lord's mercy has been evident in your life. And so what you're really doing in that time is you're preaching the gospel to yourself and you're remembering what Christ has done. And it's because of what he's done that you have the right to go forward and, and partake. And so it grieves me when people don't take it because they think, well, I'm not worthy already. And, and well, the point is, Christ has made you worthy because you have his spirit within you and he loves you. And so partake of this sacrament because it's a good thing for you to do. It, it, Christ makes it effectual unto your salvation. And so it's sad when people don't do that, but it's just a matter of teaching. You've got to teach them. And you have to be patient because we are slow learners. And you have to do it over and over again because that's just how it works. I, I didn't look at him as fellow, he was really ignorant, you know, not knowing 
like I was saying, I, this, these are things that are, um, the way that we're trying to view these things is not common in the modern evangelical church. And I look at it, the modern evangelical church. I mean, it is just going left and right and departing from God's word at every corner. So I think it's related. All right, I'm going to stop the recording next week. We're moving to the, I believe, the topic. You're going to stop it next week? Huh? Yeah, I'm recording. So next week, 